This message is brought to you by Living Faith Church. You can find us on the web at livingbyfaith.com. Why don't you open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter... Ooh, I'm missing a page. You want to pop it up for me, Donna? I can't remember. There you go. Genesis 22 and verse 1, and it says, And it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I will show you, tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him. And Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. We've been talking a little bit about the importance of moving into a place where we're realizing more and more how to live a spiritual life. And how, do we, how it is that we're able to work with God and how we're able to partner with God so that we can walk into a realm of spiritual reality that transcends the flesh and the natural. I wouldn't be complete to have that discussion without looking at Abraham. So what I really want to do is I'm going to start looking at him over the next few weeks. So I want to get the ball rolling and talk about these first few verses just to get going. There's something different about Abraham when you have a look at what's happening here. Abraham is at a place where Isaac has been born. And God comes and God says to him, Abraham, I want you to do something. And Abraham says, okay, talk to me a little bit about what it is that you want to do. And he says to him, I want you to take your son and I want you to take him off and I want to take him to a specific place and I want you to sacrifice your son. And I want you to see what Abraham did. He didn't have a conversation with God. He went to bed And he woke up early the next morning and he started getting ready for the sacrifice. He started getting everything together and he started telling his servants to sit and say, get ready because we're going. How did that come about? Because if you have a look at Abraham in that context, it's very different to the Abraham who was at a place where God initially appeared to him and God said to him, I want you to know something. I'm going to give you a son. I'm not only going to give you a son, I'm going to give you and Sarah a son. Abram and Sarai. I like his real name. What happened? He got excited about what God wanted to do. And he took that and he began to work with something and he began to wait on God. What we don't realize is that it took 20 years from when God first spoke to Abram to the time when Isaac was born. It took 20 years. And things happened in 20 years. In that context of 20 years, Abram got to the place where it was like, I don't know if things are going to work out the way that God said that they were going to work out. It's taken a long time. I don't know if perhaps God was saying, I'm going to have a son, but it won't necessarily be through Sarai. It's going to be through somebody else. 
And he started contemplating all of these things and considering all of these things. And if you compare Abraham in that context to Abraham where he is right now, there is a very different person. Something happened in his life along his journey with God that put him in a different place. That where he is right now, when God speaks, he's quick to obey. What happened? When God spoke to him, God gave him a promise. And God said to him, I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to make you a father of many nations. When Isaac was born, Isaac was the blessing. Isaac was the road to legacy. Without Isaac, I don't get to realize the promise. I'm going to be a father of many nations. And God comes into his setting and he says to him, I want you to do something. I want you to take not only the blessing, not only your one son, not only your legacy, but I want you to sacrifice all of that stuff. And he says, okay, let's go. God's word to him encountered something that was alive on the inside of Abraham where he was able to sit and say, I'm prepared to take what you're saying and I'm prepared to action it. There is a thing called logos and a thing called rhema. The logos is the, is the spoken word of God. It's God speaking to us. But the rhema is what's alive on the inside of us. Both of those things are consequential and both of those things have importance and significance in our journey with God. And having an understanding of those things becomes quite fundamental in our relationship with God and moving to a place where we're able to realize the fullness of what God plans for our life. If you drive, you had to go and get a driver's license. When you went to get your driver's license, they said, we're so happy that you've come in. And they took your name and they gave you a date where you had to come in and you had to write a test. And then you were going to go and take somebody with you for a drive. And they gave you something called a manual. The manual was the Logos. You grabbed the manual and you had to read about the rules of the road. And you had to read about how you're supposed to drive and how, what speed you're supposed to do. It gave you everything that you needed to know as a driver. The challenge with it is just getting the manual doesn't really help you. The problem with it is, is when you come into that space, the first thing that they say is, I'm glad that you understand the logos. I'm glad that you understand the manual. But I want to get into the car and drive with you. I want to see if what you do when you come to one of those roundabouts. What happens when you're driving along 66 and one of those huge tractor trailers comes next to you? How do you manage yourself? What's happened? There's a difference between the logos and the rhema. The logos is the written words. It gives you the concept, the idea. But the rhema is important because the rhema makes it personal to you. How do I take that and navigate my life? And what am I left with as a result of that? So it becomes quite important. When God met with Abraham, he said to Abraham, I promise you a son called Isaac. What ended up happening was, Abraham created a son called Ishmael. Why? What happened? 
Because along the journey of life, what ended up happening was that he took the things of God and he assimilated that and he knew what God was going to work him into. And although I, he had an idea, he had the logos of what God had to him, he wasn't established, this is my hypothesis, in the rhema of who God was all about. And so what ended up happening is I got excited about the word of God. I started walking out the word of God, but all of a sudden it took longer than I had anticipated. It took longer than I had expected. Things weren't working out the way that they should. My wife was 20 years down the road. She was a whole lot older than she was before and she was old before. Now she's older than old. So what did he decide to do? I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to help God out. And because I was going to help God out, the things that I did in the flesh, I created an Ishmael. And God said, what are you doing? You see, as a result of that accident, and as a result of learning with God, he moved to a place where he understood what it was to live by the promise and not by his own ability. In our lives, the invitation that God extends to us is to live by the promise. If I come to you and I make a promise to you and I say to you, you know what? I'm going to bring you, I'll bring you lunch tomorrow afternoon. I promise you. If I make that commitment to you, what I'm saying to you is I am assuming responsibility for delivering lunch to you tomorrow. The thing about it is on your part, you have to be at a place where you sit and say, are you going to arrive with lunch or aren't you? Do you trust me to bring you lunch or don't you? I can make you the promise, but you have to decide what you want to do with the promise. Some people will sit in the expectation of lunch arriving, but there are going to be other people who sat and said, well, he said he was going to bring lunch, but I don't know whether he's going to get, bring lunch, so I'm just going to order lunch out anyway. I can make you the promise, but do you trust me to deliver it or don't you? God makes us promises. And the thing about God's promises is that they're yes and amen. God is going to deliver on them. God is going to deliver on them. The challenge that we have is something that's replete without scripture. What did I do with my water? Oh. It's replete that happens without scripture. If you have a look at Abraham, uh, Abraham, Adam, what happened to Adam? God said to him, I'll put you in paradise and I'll put you in a place where you can live with everything that you need. But I just have one request of you, one instruction. Do not eat from that tree over there. You see, that's the tree of the knowledge of good of evil. That is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when you eat of that tree, you will die. Adam's disobedience was not his problem. It was symptomatic of a deeper problem that he had, which was he didn't trust God. You see, because he didn't trust God, he took things into his own hands. The moment that he took the forbidden fruit and he ate the forbidden fruit, what he was saying is, I don't see God as being trustworthy, so I'm going to take care of my own future. You see, any time we take and we participate in things and we grab a hold of things and we take it in our own strength and we run with it, what we're really saying to God is, I don't trust you. I'll take care of it. Yeah. 
What's most important in our life is not obedience, but trust. It's not obedience, it's trust. You see, when God said to Abraham, I want you to take your son, and I want you to take him, and I want you to sacrifice him. In that moment, something happened in Abraham's life. And what came out of him and his actions, his reaction to that, gives us an understanding as to what was established in his heart. What happens in our lives when God gives us an invitation or an instruction to do something, the way that we respond to it gives us an indication as to the degree of trust that's established on the inside of us. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. And prove me now if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you cannot contain it. Why do people not tithe? Because they don't trust God. They don't trust God. Let me give you an example. Let's imagine this happened. You brought your tithe in and you put your tithing And the moment you put your tithe in, there was thunder and lightning and the heavens parted and the the clouds were torn apart and hundred dollar bills fell from heaven. And you were like, glory be, I love tithing. I'm taking the cap off of tithing, forget tithing. I'm going to become a giver. I'm bringing in a hundred percent of everything that I have. Why? Because God delivered. And when God delivers, all of a sudden I can trust him. The problem with it is I come in and he gives me his word, but I don't trust him. So I don't tithe. I don't live as a giver. I'm just using these as an example. Why? The issue is trust, not obedience. You see, the thing about it is if we were grounded and rooted in love for who he was, if we were established in a trust relationship with him, obedience comes naturally. It's second nature to us. I can't wait to follow what he instructs me to do because I'm living in the expectation that he's going to deliver because I trust him. If he says, lay hands on the sick and they'll recover, why do I do it? Because I'm living in the expectation if he said it, he's going to deliver it. The challenge with it is we have lots of Christians who are obedient, but they don't trust. They do things, but they don't have the trust in God. Trust becomes fundamental. And so once again, we start to see the importance and the significance of harmonizing the Logos and the Rhema. Because what he's saying to us is, I'm going to invite you to do certain things. I'm going to speak to you, but it's going to be based on the premise that you have something established on the inside of you. That you have on the inside of you a trust in me so that I can lay a claim against that. And you're the first one to wake up in the morning and sit and say, let's go and cut the wood. Let's get the donkeys ready. Let's get the servants and let's go and get Isaac. Because I don't know where and I don't know how and I don't know what's going to happen, but God's going to do something good. Because you know what? He's promised me that I'm going to be a father of many nations. I don't know how it's going to happen, but he's provided for me once. And I can tell you now, if there's one thing that I've learned from my history and from my experience and from my mistakes, is that he will always be there and he will always deliver. And so let's go and let's see what happens. Where are you with God? 
Where are your trust with your God, with God? How are you established in that context? It becomes important for us because we're moving into different arenas. And as we move into different arenas, it demands something different of us. You see, disobedience manifests itself in two different ways. It either manifests itself in the way that Adam did. And so we do the opposite of what God said. Tithe. Well, I'm not going to tithe because I don't believe that God's going to bless me. I do the opposite. But there is another way that we enter into disobedience with God that is equally as destructive, but a whole lot more subtle. In Exodus um, chapter 19, it tells us a story about children of Israel. And they're at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up and he meets with God. And God says, Moses... I've got to tell you something. I'm really excited about it. This is Gavin's paraphrased version. I'm really excited about where we are and what's happening here. And I want to tell you something. Should I tell you what makes me so excited? Is that I'm going to have a people that I'm going to call my own. And these are going to be a people that are going to call me God. I'm so looking forward to it. I want you to go down and I want you to speak to Israel and tell them what it is that I'm planning here. And he goes down the mountain and he tells them... And in verse 8, it says, they responded to him and they said to him, tell God whatever it is that he wants us to do, let us know and we'll do it. It was the wrong answer. It was the wrong answer. What they should have said was, Moses, I want you to know something. God, the one who cut covenant with Abraham, the one who was a covenant God, we want to lay a claim against that covenant and we want to move to a place and you tell God we will be his people and we will trust him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But they didn't trust him. So what did they say? They said, Moses, you go and tell God to tell us how we live our lives. So that we can walk it out and we will design and walk into our own blessing. That's where the law came from. That's where the law came from. They messed up. You see, in God's economy, relationship is more important than rules. We step into rules when we step out of relationship. When we step out of relationship, we can't define things and we can't understand how things should be operating. And so what ends up happening is we sit and say, give me a rule. Let me try and follow it so that I can be what you want me to be. But it was never his design. His design was to live out of relationship. He is the center of our being. He's supposed to be everything that, he need, that we need for him to be. We live in a different covenant. We live in the new covenant. And because we live in the new covenant, we have so many advantages that they never had. Abraham, I think about this. Abraham never had the word of God. I'm talking about the tangible, I'm talking about the Bible stuff. Not he didn't hear a word. He didn't have the Bible. He couldn't go and pull something out and sit and say, let's reference who God is, where God's been, what he's done in the lives of other people. He had nothing tangible but the word of God that he could live off of. We have the word of God. 
It's the inspired word of God. It gives us definition and understanding as to who he is. Not only that, but the moment that you got born again, you have the very life of God that's coming, uh, that's come and dwells on the inside of who you are. It's living on the inside of you. John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's probably the most exclusive claim ever made by a person. It's the most offensive claim to our modern day generation of tolerance. He lays claim to things and says it's exclusively mine. It's important to understand what he said because the thing about it is, if we read it the wrong way, it'll lead us down the wrong path. There are too many people who take that and what they do is they read it as, God says to me, I will show you the way, I will tell you the truth so that you can live life. He never said that. But you see, the problem with it is when we allow our intellect and our understanding to get involved in that, what it does is it begins to grab hold of that and it introduces us to a formula for living because we people who love to build monuments to self. You see, if I can understand it, I can do something that looks really good and everybody around will take a look at it and sit and say, gee, you did a great job. It was the whole story that went with the Tower of Babel. It's what Abraham did when he developed Ishmael. It's what, it was what Israel was sitting saying to God. Give us the law so we can develop a monument to ourselves. It's what defines denominations. Let's go to Jesus and I'll get an interpretation of who he is and what I think he's all about. And I'll set a whole bunch of rules and regulations in, in place. And if you want to come and be part of our group, these are the rules. If you want to look like us, follow the rules. And so we all wear our little labels. And it's so inconsequential in the economy of God. Because in the economy of God, there is no denomination. There is only one way, truth, and life in his claim is Jesus. You see, when Jesus presented himself, essentially, and by sitting saying, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, what he was saying was, I am Jehovah. He was saying, I am that I am. Everything that you need for me to be, that's me. There is a big gulf between Jesus who says, I will show you the way, and Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life for us. The invitation that he extends to us is to get into relationship with him where we allow him to be able to do that stuff through us because he is all we need in our lives. He is everything. Parenthood is interesting. And that's an understatement. When you decide to become a parent, God entrusts you with life. And that little bit of life that you have can't talk, can't express itself necessarily. It's 
It's dependent on you to take care of it, to provide for it, to feed for it, to nurture it, to clothe it, to comfort it. Everything that it is looking for comes from you. But as that baby grows, everything that that baby was designed to be has already been planted inside of that child. God did it. I knew you before I formed you in the womb. Your responsibility in the natural realm, I'm giving an example here, as a parent, is to be able to read your child. To sit and say, I'm seeing who they are. I'm beginning to identify parts of who they are and what they're all about. And your responsibility of the father is to sit and say, I am here to build relationship with them. And in the context of that trust relationship, I'm here to affirm and to pull out of them everything that currently exists on the inside of them. I want them to discover themselves in the context of father's love. You see, if I don't do it in the context of father's love, what ends up happening is they're still going to have their identity defined, but they're going to get it defined through Facebook. They're going to get it defined through school. They're going to get it defined through peers. They're going to get it defined through circumstances and situations. What I need to do is I have a responsibility to sit and say, I see parts of who you are, and I'm here to pull it out. And I'm here to pull that out because I want you to know that I'm on your side. I want you to know that I recognize who you are. I need for you to be moved to a place where you develop the confidence to sit and say, I am who I am in a world that may well be against you. You need to be at a place where where you have the ability to sit and say, you know what, I'm confident enough to be able to voice an opinion, even if you don't agree with it, because I believe that it's right. I need to build on the inside of them the resiliency and the tenacity to realize that life isn't always going to be easy, and there are going to be circumstances and situations that are going to prevail against you, that are going to fight against you, but you will prevail. What am I doing? I'm doing some stuff on the inside of them um, so that they realize who they are and they truthfully get established in who they are. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3 says, Unless you become as a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying, you don't know who you are when you got born again. But you're going to discover who you are as a born-again believer. You're going to discover who you are in Christ the moment you move into relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's responsibility is to sit and say, get young, move to a place of discovery so that I can introduce you to Christ on the inside of you. So I can introduce you to aspects of his character and who he is and what he's all about, what he's done for you, so that I can get you established on the inside, get that established on the inside of you. Because when the Holy Spirit has done that on the inside of you and you grow up with that stuff, you will never depart from it. When you grow up with that stuff, you'll find yourself established on the inside of you with a rhema that positions you to grab hold of God's logos and step into things that you would never have done before. Why? Because I became as a little child and I let the Holy Spirit lead me and guide me and grow me up and recognize parts of my identity in terms of who I am in Christ and get that established on the inside of me. I built a relationship with him. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. Um, I'm going to read this. I know, Donnie, you don't have it. 
I'm going to read it because I've given you, a, I, wanted, I want to read it a paraphrased version. I took it out of the Passion, um, but I added some bits in that they got from different pieces. Anyway, just, just listen. <laughs> Galatians 5.22. But the fruit or the harvest produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all its varied expressions. Joy that overflows. Peace that subdues, never quitting patience that endures, kindness in action, a life full of goodness or virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart and strength, or lordship of spirit. What is the point? The point is the Holy Spirit is doing something on the inside of us, getting us established in the fruit of who he is. Why? Because... The fruit of what God has established on the inside of you was not only designed to define your personality, but it's a springboard into potential with God. Your faith established on the inside of you can take you places fear will never get you. The things established on the inside of you by the Holy Spirit will take you places you can't go on your own. Peace established on the inside of you will liberate you and take you to places and let you deal with the the conflicts and the issues and the turbulence of life in ways that you'll never be able to do on your own. What is he doing? He's sitting saying, I recognize the parts to who you need to be in order to be successful. And the intangibles of life, the things that you can't read in the Logos are as consequential and as significant, maybe even more so. And so he's focusing on those things and getting them established in our life. Why? Because he wants to move us to a place that when he calls us to do something, when he calls us to be obedient, when he invites us into an encounter, we have established on the inside of us everything that we need to be able to say, yes, let's do it. The invitation without what's established doesn't go anywhere. Because I'm father to my kids, I can ask them things and I have expectations of them that other people can't have. I've used this example before, but I think it's a good one, so I'm using it again. When my kids were learning to swim, they used to run around the swimming pool and they might jump in on the step here and there, but they wouldn't get in the water in any deep areas because they knew I can't swim. It's dangerous. Don't do that. But when dad went swimming with me, dad could stand at the edge and I could say, jump and I'll catch you. When I said jump, it was the invitation. It was the logos. What I was saying was, I'm inviting you into an encounter. Why did they respond? Because what was established on the inside of them was a trust where they said, I know who you are. I'll jump. I'm not the biggest guy in the world. I don't have the longest arms. I'm not the strongest person. I'm not the tallest. I'm not the biggest brute. But if he was standing next to me and he said to one of my kids, jump, I'll catch you. They wouldn't do it. And you would say, but why? Because you see, they understood that he's bigger than me. He's stronger. He has longer reach. Surely that's a better option. 
In the intellect, it doesn't make any sense. Well, you would say, why on earth would you jump to your dad and not him? Because what was established on the inside of them is so much more consequential than what's happening outside. God invites us to a place where we understand the relationship between Logos and Rhema, between having understanding and having confidence, between having knowledge and having trust. That's why it's so important for our, our journey with God. Because as we move forward and we move into different things, what he's saying to us is, I need something established on the inside of you because I want to invite you into encounters. I want you to jump in the pool and I want you to have the encounter of swimming, which you would never have if you didn't trust me and you weren't prepared to jump. I would live on the side and dream of jumping. But I'd never have the encounter. We want the encounters with God. We don't want a one-dimensional life where we live in the logos and the possibilities. But for me to jump, I've got to have something established inside of me. Because God is going to present us with opportunities with regularity to have an encounter. He's with regularly going to ask us, do this. Will you go and pray for them in the parking lot? Or even worse, in the grocery store where other people might see. Can he do it? What is going to determine your response? Do you trust him? It's fundamental in moving forward with God that we recognize that the Christian walk in large part, more than being about obedience, is about trust. You see, if you establish trust, obedience is second nature. John chapter 16 and verse 4. I don't know where all my notes are today. I did have them, I promise. I'm lying. John 15 verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments and remain in his love. What he's saying is this. Trusting me to the point of obeying what I ask you to do is an indication that you're remaining in my love. Things come naturally and easily to us when we remain in his love. The power of his love establishes things in our life that we're not going to get through intellect or understanding. It's not to say that that's not important. God will use Logos. But we have to have something established on the inside of us that it's able to draw from. And when we don't have that, what ends up happening is we live with the idea of what could have been, but we never had the encounter. We need encounters in our life. We need encounters. God wants to manifest himself. And he's looking for people that he could work through. 
Our relationship with God and the reason that love is important is because he is love. That is his nature. When you get into relationship with God, you get into relationship with love. And love can do some stuff in your life that becomes the springboard for invitation. There are some things in our life that we can only gain through relationship and through love. You are never going to get it through understanding. Abraham was quick to obey God. He was quick to sit and say, I'm packing up and I'm on my way. It wasn't because he was exasperated. It was because he was living in anticipation. What are you going to do? You see, when we fundamentally get our lives situated and and built on trust, every day becomes about what are you going to do? I become a vessel through which he can work and do things. It's people who trust that change circumstances and situations. It's people who trust whose lives are transformed. It's people who trust who walk into a dimension of reality with Christ that people who want to live out of ability never realize. It's an exciting platform to live off of. Because it takes the pressure off you. All it invites you into is relationship. God says, I'll do the rest. God's commitment is the promise. If he committed the promise, he's saying, I'll fulfill it. Will you trust me that I'm coming with the lunch? (laughs) Father, we just bless you for your goodness and Just for your love for us. I thank you that you're a father of love. And as we get close to love, I want to thank you that love touches us and changes us and transforms us. I want to thank you, Holy Spirit, for every person here today and every person who's watching or listening. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will bring us to a place of humility so we're prepared to position ourselves as children. People at a place where we allow you, Holy Spirit, to begin to work and to change and establish on the inside of us a reality and a truth of who we are in Christ. I want to thank you that as that platform is established, it gives us a foundation of which we can begin to build our lives. It offers us a springboard to live into to living life of a superior nature. I pray for invitations this week. Invitations into encounter. I want to thank you, Father, for Kathy. And I want to thank you for a life of someone who is committed to you. And I want to thank you that she's a walking testimony of what you've done in her life. I thank you, Father, that in every one of us, you create opportunities to be living testimonies to you. We bless you for it now in Jesus' name. Amen.